Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When we die, God, is nothing left. Ever since I was a child, I had the feeling something is missing in me. I want to know why I'm here. Become yourself, and God and the devil don't matter. I want to learn. delight to be with you again. My name is Henrik and I want to extend my thanks to everyone who listens in as we dive deep into some of the heavy and controversial stuff. We try to unfurl the complex, study both the parts and the whole in an effort to understand. This is an ongoing process as we've said before. Nothing stands still or is static. Things change and move around. Things die and things grow. We learn new things and questioning is something that I believe that you need to continue to do to remain both focused and centered, no matter how much you think you know or how much you think you have it all down. RedEyesCreations.com is our website. We encourage you to follow us regularly. You can stream or download our program from the website whenever it pleases you, and we spare you from commercial interruptions during the program. Today we have another roundtable discussion. We are going to talk about lost civilizations, mound builders, and the giants of ancient America and the world with three guests. Ross Hamilton is with us. He's the author of several books, including The Mystery of the Serpent Mound, a tradition of giants, wonders, and mysteries of the Great Serpent Mound. His newest is called Star Mounds, Legacy of a Native American Mystery. He also volunteers at Serpent Mound as both interpreter and tour guide, and has been studying the mysteries of the Ohio Valley Earthworks for years, offering new ways to approach the earthwork studies. Then we have stonemason and historical detective Jim Vera, his research over the last 20 years has led him down a bizarre road of intrigue and mystery surrounding the races and built structures of ancient America. Vera has compiled thousands of accounts of giant skeleton reports 
as well as town and county histories to make the case that the history of our past not only has been deliberately covered up, but is vastly different than what we are told. Last but not least, Hugh Newman is also joining us. He has been with us before on the program, and he's an earth mysteries and esoteric science researcher who has authored two books. He also organizes the Megalithomania conferences, co-edits Avalon Rising magazine, and coordinates talks, films, and workshops at numerous festivals. All right, welcome, gentlemen. It's uh, great to have you all here today with us. This is going to be both uh, informative and uh, exciting. This is a fascinating topic of uh, giants, of course, in the ancient world. But uh, let's bring you on one at a time, one guest at a time here. Uh, Hugh Newman, you've been with us before many times. It's good to have you back again. Uh, welcome. Well, thanks for thanks for having us back. Excellent. Good to have you here, Hugh. Um, of course, thanks for, for doing this with us and uh, helping us to get in contact with the other two guests that we're going to bring on as well. First of all, Ross Hamilton, thanks for uh, coming on the program with us. Yeah, Henrik, thank you for uh, for asking me. Oh, you bet. It's going to be very interesting. And we have also Jim Vera uh, with us on the other end of this uh, Skype conversation. Welcome, Jim. Uh, welcome to you and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Excellent. Now let's begin here a little bit with... Um, I guess we can begin with you, Ross. Uh, both Ross and Jim are, are new names on the program. As I said, we have had Hugh with us before, and, and uh, you guys are familiar with our uh, radio program and also about some of the stuff we've been talking about when it comes to megalithic sites and everything else with Hugh. Uh, but give us a little bit on your background first, Ross, uh, when you got involved in this and, and, and uh, kind of some of the research that you've been doing over the years. Our, our research uh, started back at the turn of the century, actually in, in the year 2000. Uh, when I made contact with um, a noted Native American author and leader, Vine Deloria Jr., who has passed away now. He passed away after we got done with the project. But um, Vine had been collecting, on behalf of Native people, unusual accounts that pointed out that there was a higher civilization in the Americas than what we've been uh, taught to believe by the white establishment here in the States, and that the, uh, the, uh, the prejudice against uh, Native people, as well as blacks, of course, has been so vehement and, and so continuous since uh, colonial times that uh, we were astonished when we began to uh, hit these nerve roots uh, that uh, were kind of explaining to us a lot of the missing or lost information. Now, we got started with with specifically the giants because, um, as we've discussed before um, in other conversations, the giants uh, are the most intriguing, one of the most intriguing of the subjects of lost civilizations. And uh, we were fortunate here in the United States, and we live in Ohio, which is uh, close to the, uh, it's on the eastern side of the United States, but uh, close to the uh, central part. And uh, we, we were astonished to find that um, when we combed through the old township uh, uh, diaries and, and many of the old scientific journals uh, that we got from the local libraries and from some of the online libraries that we were just learning how to get into at the turn of the century, uh, to find that uh, there were uh, just about an unmitigated number of accounts. We couldn't keep track of all of them discussing pioneer discoveries when they dug into these earthworks after acquiring the land after the Revolutionary War uh, and finding uh, uh, a tremendous number of extra-large 
skeletons. Now, uh, we want to put this in context, so you have to understand a little bit about Native history. And Vine helped me out a great deal with understanding history from the American Native point of view. And it's completely in reverse to what we've been taught. Um, you know, we, we've always thought of the Native person as the noble savage. But during the uh, the early part of the of the of the twentieth century in the late eighteen uh, hundreds, uh, when um, the Darwinian theory was coming in, Darwin was transposed into what we call social Darwinism, and and that was immediately laid upon our apprehension or our understanding of of native uh, existence, uh, especially in pre-Columbian times. And as a result of fitting Darwinian precept over the social history of Native people and prehistory, we decided that Native people were not quite human. They weren't quite uh, evolved enough to um, give a reputable version of pre-Columbian history. And as a result of that, the scientific community decided to exclude native testimony and as a result of the exclusion of native testimony and that occurred officially uh, through Smithsonian and through other academic sources at yeah. Harvard, Yale. Uh, as a result of that, um, all the accounts of, uh, of native history were um, completely annihilated from the record. So as um, this prehistoric uh, history was eliminated, we depended completely upon what we could find. And by the time we could find anything, uh, most of the uh, mounds had already been uncovered, looting them to look for gold and artifacts of value. So uh, basically, uh, before, we, uh, before we move on to uh, specifics, there were uh, six or seven reasons why these uh, giant skeletons literally disappeared. And with the help of uh, this non-belief and, and, and wanting to get the lands of Native people away, the government kind of sided with this exclusion of, of um, the Native testimony and the fact that the very tall people recorded in our American history were said to be of a time-honored tradition of selective mating or marriage both fragile and in a stage of imminent collapse. So, in other words, when the first pilgrims came over, there were still very giant and tall people, but they were subject to the disease that the white people were bringing over. And as a result of that, their already delicate inbreeding through marriage from their ancient lineages was very subject to disease. Mm -hmm. So smallpox took its toll. Then, then there was the factor of the pioneers and their immediate generations unearthing so many graves so quickly and fast that the remains of the giants, what we call the tall people, rapidly went back to the earth when contacted with the oxygen of the atmosphere. And so many of the skeletal remains that were uncovered by the early settlers, the antiquarians, which are the pre-archaeology uh, version of, of uh, science, uh, collectors, museum officials, etc., were already in, in such a state of apparent antiquity that they had already been returned to the consistency of the earth. Mm. Now, I'm quoting from my book a little bit, so bear with me. The skeletons that did endure 
the white man was just just amazed by them because they were you know likened to these biblical giants you know um, the tall giants that supposedly were the sons of God yeah and so they um, they likened them to that and so these skulls went for big bucks and so they took the long bones of the legs and the skulls and they sold them and traded them and within a short period of time they were so disarticulated that the rest of the bodies were lost and then the skulls past hands became damaged and almost none of them exist anymore hmm. and and then to top it off native americans were so in they're so outraged by this going on that in the 1980s they forced congress to pass an act called nagpra which is uh, an acronym for native american graves protection and repatriation act and so they went into the bone larders of all the museums they could get into, which did not include the Smithsonian, by the way. And they uh, grabbed all these bones and artifacts that they could find, and they threw them back into the earth at secret places. Hmm. So we lost a lot of them. But we did uh, talk to some of these, some of the native tribes that had done to the midst of the repatriation, the Nez Perce, the Chumash, and uh, the Shawnee, and the, the Cherokee, and so forth. And they said, yeah, they got a lot of bones of giant chieftains and so forth. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, and then there's also the minor issue of the modern day use of heavy equipment which destroys relics before they can be uh, properly uh, unearthed. So, so, you know, that's, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Really good. We're going to return, Ross, to some of these points, of course. I mean, Ohio overall has to be one of the most exciting places when it comes to, you know, the mounds there and everything else. We'll return to many of these questions as well. Let's bring in Jim here as well. I want to ask you a little bit about your background and interest uh, in this and and joining in the conversation here, Jim. Yes. uh, Actually, it's very synchronistic, as I'll uh, talk about in a second. I'm a stonemason by trade. And about 20 years ago, I started to find strange structures in the woods. And my brother is a stonemason also. And I started to realize that they didn't fit a colonial context. I would see stone turtles and serpents, um, carns up to nine foot tall that were not farmers clearing piles and chambers and other structures. And I read the book Manitou by Jim Maver and Byron Dix, a couple of researchers who studied these um, stone monuments for, for at least seven years and concluded that they were the remains of um, Native American ceremonial structures in fact, the oldest burial mound in the country is in the northeast in Labrador at Lansamore, Labrador, the 7,500-year-old maritime archaic stone burial mound. So, you know, my, my belief in a lot of other researchers is that there is a uh, legacy of ceremonialism in the northeast that goes back at least 9,000 years uh, ago. Like the maritime archaic, they hunted for swordfish deep out to sea. They had sophisticated geometric designs on their artifacts, and they traveled thousands of nautical miles, and very little is known about them. And it, I started to study the mound builders. I mean, I'm a voracious reader, and I didn't even find out about the mound builders until I was like 35 years old. <laughs> and the astounding constructions, the earthen pyramids, the geometric forms, the mathematics embedded in it was, was astounding. I had always been taught that Native American civilizations were unsophisticated, nomadic, and savage. So it really irritated me why uh, all these things were not known about. So I, in the course of my research, I started reading through town histories looking for 
accounts of pre-colonial stonework, which I found many of them when the colonists showed up. But I also found the mention of an eight-foot skeleton with double rows of teeth in the famous historian George Sheldon's 1895 History of Deerfield, Massachusetts. And that propelled me to read thousands of pages more. And all around New England, I found similar things. Arthur's Vineyard, seven-foot double rows of teeth. Town History of Middleborough, seven-eight double rows of teeth. On and on and on. And then I went to the museum in Deerfield which, that Sheldon founded, and I found that he had an archaeological scrapbook filled with giant skeleton accounts from the New York Times and other sources. And on display, they had the femur bone of an over-eight-foot skeleton uh, that was reinterred uh, recently as part of NAGPRA. And I spoke to the physical anthropologist who was part of the team. So I have all these I, – I listened to your show, uh, on the Red Eye Show, with Hugh talking, and I was interested, and I said, I'm going to go down to the conference in Connecticut. <laughs> so I go down to the conference, I meet Hugh, I listen to Ross and Jeff Jeffrey Wilson talking about giants, and I got my list of giant accounts thinking I, I uncovered some great mystery. <clears throat> and synchronistically, I uh, then teamed up with Ross, I've been in contact with Hugh, and uh, a series of other researchers, and we've put together literally thousands of accounts, I would say well over 2,000 accounts right now, Many times talking about anatomic anomalies like double rows of teeth, massive teeth, uh, massive jaw bones you can fit over the face of the finder. Just literally hundreds of these accounts all over the country in obscure town histories and scientific journals. And it stretches the re you know, imagination to believe that somehow in an age of inefficient communication, people knew about these things and reported on them in a hoax-like fashion with no perceived gain. So my, my intuition is that this is a real phenomena. And then reading Ross's book and, and more material, I was like, oh, my God, I, I just can't believe how much information is out there. And I've come to realize that there is a – it's not like every anthropologist and archaeologist meets in a secret room or something like that. It's just they have been fed historical propaganda and censored accounts for so long. They've been told that this is like leprechauns and mermaids. So when you contact them, there is no intellectual curiosity or open-mindedness. You're immediately yeah. shut down like you're out of your mind. And it has just inspired me to – I run a Facebook page called uh, Stone Builders, Mound Builders, and the Giants of Ancient America. And I write Your Daily Giant. And I have hundreds of posts that go in-depth and oh, show yeah. records and, and, and um, just really compelling uh, evidence for the existence of this. And I believe this is the first domino to fall – I believe this is one of those quote-unquote controversial subjects that will be proven true and open the door to a, a rethinking of anthropological, archaeological, historical, and Darwinian theories. Very good. Rant. Very good, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's fascinating in itself. Uh, more to, to uh, discuss about this, of course. Uh, Hugh, let's turn to you a little bit. You've been an intricate part of this kind of research, of course, ever since you've been doing the work uh, that you have with megalithomania. Uh, the giant's part of all of this, if you will, has to be one of the most well interesting and outrageous areas that, that there is, right, Hugh? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the problem with the giant theory, uh, especially, you know, in academia, is that it's, it's all wound up in myth and legend. 
um, and, and in biblical stories. I mean, there's too many to mention here, um, but with Goliath and uh, the fallen angels and all this kind of stuff. And, and also in England, you know, and, and, in, and in France and all over Europe, many of the legends and folklore uh, with the megalithic sites is that they were built by giants. Uh, Stonehenge uh, was called the Giant's Dance. Um, and I've just recently, I just did a bit of research recently, and this whole thing about David and Goliath, even though it's like a sort of mythical, biblical story, apparently um, in that area where this supposedly took place, there's actually a large mound was built <laughs> that hasn't been excavated yet, as far as I know, where Goliath or his family were said to be buried, um, I think mm. around the sort of north of Damascus or some area around there. So this, so we, the, more, the more you look into this, the more you find. Even in some of the mounds around Stonehenge, there's said to be some giant skeletons were discovered. There's the famous Irish giant um, that was fossilized, uh, and, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, and it just, it, it's, I've kind of, I didn't really take any notice of it until I actually read Ross's book, A Tradition of Giants, when I was, I stayed with David Hatch Childress's place for uh, a while, a while back in 2007, I think. And I just devoured the whole book and I was like, oh my God, this is a whole other, a whole other angle on these ancient sites. So from that, I went to, I was in, I went to California from Arizona. I went to California and I'd read, um, I think it was mentioned in Ross's book, and it was in one of David Hatch Childress's own books about a twelve-foot giant that was discovered at Lompoc Ranch, uh, which is uh, not not too far from Los Angeles. So I went to Lompoc Ranch, and I did. A, I tried to investigate. I went to the local historical site. There's nothing about it, but exactly where the ranch used to be was now a full-fledged military base covering the whole area. Hmm. And and this is the same. You start noticing this. Um, as as Jim and Ross will both point out, and you've mentioned already, most of the giant discoveries end with the Smithsonian. Um, but a lot in England and in Europe, you often get where these amazing discoveries and these skeletons were found. You get military bases right over the top of them. Um, and so this is this is again, this is kind of you know we have to question: Is this a conspiracy? Are they trying to? Are they trying to? Whoever it is, are they trying to stop us knowing about our true heritage? Are we related to the giants? I think that's that's one of the questions that kind of keeps popping up when uh, any of us like discuss this. Um, but I went on a road trip last year um, exploring the whole giant culture. Started in New England. We drove through Pennsylvania, um, and even in Pennsylvania, uh, they found this. I've, I've, I've found quite a few reports of some that are over 11 foot tall uh, around Harrisburg area um, and obviously Jim's done all the research in New England but throughout New Western New York State into Pennsylvania and through into the Ohio Valley but also you know off the coast of um, the, the islands off the coast of California they found you know there's something like 300 giant skeletons mm. that were said to have been discovered there so it's everywhere in, in South America there's Turkey um, even in France it's just everywhere you go it seems like this is one part of history which has been deliberately deleted from the history books and I think as Jim rightly points out it needs to be brought back to the surface and the first domino has now been knocked over. All right. Yep. Very good. Now, uh, we need to get into this idea of, of who they are, who the giants are. And, and as you mentioned, Hugh, this question, if they are, you know, the original natives, if you will, of, of planet Earth or, or something else. Why don't we begin with you, Ross, and, and, and give us your take on 
on on who and and when and where, if you will, of this uh, you know interesting question. Okay, thanks, Henrik. Um, my background is in is, as an initiate philosopher. I was initiated by an Indian uh, perfect master of spiritual science, um, Kapal Singh, back in the late sixties, and I spent forty uh, years in meditation, clarifying and studying. Uh, the uh, the ancient um, philosophical traditions all over the world. And what I've discovered um, and what the giants have helped to bring home is something that I'm attempting to, to pin down in a couple of books. But again, we need context um, for understanding. And that is that our planet uh, has not always been strictly a physical entity. Um, from time to time, um, the human population transforms itself into a population of, of more perfect beings, uh, what we would call godlike uh, beings. And the last notion we had or have had of an advanced golden age kind of civilization uh, is with uh, through the mythologies of Atlantis and Lemuria. But local traditions uh, suggest that there have been uh, times when, uh, just within the last 6,000 years, pockets of the spiritual science, the tradition of land and sky management have cropped up uh, in England, I think around the, in the Glastonbury region, uh, here in the Ohio Valley, um, uh, in Guatemala, uh, in Greece, and I think Egypt was a, a prominent uh, colony of Atlantis as well. Uh, when let's 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 go back a little bit in time, uh, even before twelve thousand years ago, and we we read that at one time before the gods uh, ruled the planet that there was another system of titans. And that these titans um, were 12 in number, and that they were likened to the great passage of time, the great year. And they were led by Kronos, which name translates as time. Uh, Kronos was uh, very upset with his father, Oranos, who was the sky. Oranos means sky. Because Oranos had become sort of separated from his wife, who originally was his mother, Gaia. Gaia is still a popular term for the earth, which I like to bring back, by the way. Um, and so this relationship between Uranus and Gaia was very um, advantageous and bore fruit for eons. Uh, there was a cooperation between heaven and earth. And in fact, in the very beginning, the earth was said to have not had a heavenly sphere, but that by interacting with primal love, Eros, she created the sky, which um, translates nowadays to mean not just the atmosphere, but the protective spirit of the sky, the magnetic field. So the spirit of Gaia, which was referenced by John Michel, he was the first one, along with Rudolf Steiner, to kind of help us to bring back this knowledge that has been passed down through a philosophical tradition, this spirit of Gaia 
was once utilized, it was once harnessed um, by the inhabitants of the planet in order to produce a stronger and more protective magnetic field and also to produce a sort of alchemy that conferiated, in other words, that married the, um, the energy of the sky with the energy of the earth. The two aspects of the magnetic field, the sky aspect, which produces clouds and a more negative charge, and then the earth's aspect, which is produced out of a multitude of various elements and therefore produces more of a positive charge, less electrons and more of the ethereal magnetic current. So when these two are uh, brought together through specific temple systems, which focus the energy of the earth so that it can kind of um, elicit or bring down, uh, I should say solicit, or, or uh, bring down to the capstones of the old pyramids and the spires of the old temples, uh, the, the, the charge of the sky, the result was a constant production of what we call prana or life force or vitality, which when it's kept going, uh, literally created a transformation of the earth and impregnated the hard, uh, cold material of the earth with life force energy, bringing everything to life. And so the earth um, at one time enjoyed a system that was artificially produced, but had the helping hand of, a, of another grand cycle, which lasts the length of the precessionary period called the Great Year, which um, allows us to have a natural golden age in a period of about 8,000 years over a 25 or 26,000 year period. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, the populace, which was kind of shored up with a, a group of enlightened individuals, who we call the sages and the rishis, the gods of the ancient days, decided to keep the golden age preserved by allowing the field of the earth, the natural magnetic field of the earth, to bring together its twin aspects and create an abundance of the life force. And the last time we saw one of those Renaissance periods was about 6,000 years ago, and it completely petered out about 5,000 years ago. And that's why we see history seeming to have begun about 3,000 BC. So, mm. uh, in a nutshell, um, the reason the giants um, kind of petered out and why it's so difficult for us to believe they ever really existed is because we lost the, the illumination of higher consciousness when we lost that spiritual technology, which is outlined very well between uh, Steiner and Michelle's writings. So, um, um, you know, in brief, um, we have forgotten. And the giants have become a part of the stuff, like Jim says, of... Uh, of uh, mermaids and leprechauns, yeah. fairy tales, because we can't comprehend the subtle material that is produced when we steward the earth properly and uh, and bring about the life force in abundance. So, so let me ask you this to clarify that point a little bit, because it's a very interesting one. You're saying then that the properties, if you will, of, of the earth are, are, are what's driving how the humans on the earth um, appear and what they can do and, and so forth. So you're saying that the giants, in effect, are human beings, right? In a different form. Is that what you're saying? 
Absolutely. It's, it's a funny thing. I mean, Vine Gloria, who was my native teacher, uh, inculcated in me that you have to understand that the animals have shrunk in size too. Yeah, yeah. And, and that there is something going on in the atmosphere all over the world, uh, you know, during the Pleistocene period that allowed things to grow naturally and, and that the genetics of everything was allowed to flourish and, and come out wholly. So, you know, yeah, the earth once um, enjoyed a prosperity and that many of the animals and people have disappeared the various kinds of animals because they they can't sustain the kind of of uh, life that they need rich in the etheric uh, you know the fifth element of the ether um, the etheric um, condition uh, without uh, some artificial production or waiting you know uh, twelve thousand years for the uh, for the golden age to come back naturally so so yeah yeah we it's up to us, really, to uh, to do this. And uh, the Maya teach us that once every once every five thousand one hundred twenty years, um, the masters come back and they teach us how to steward the earth, and we uh, reconvene the golden age for a period of a thousand years. So you know, we in the underground, and I learned a lot from Hugh about what was going on in his neck of the woods in Great Britain. And now I've learned a lot from um, from Jim, who's uh, put together this uh, network, who he's helped to put together this ghost network of of collection of uh, magnetic energy all through the eastern United States with the stoneworks. Um, you know, we're, we're reconvening this understanding of the possibility of reproducing the life force enough so that we can begin to live decently again and and uh and uh grow things and bring out their their um their proper dna structure through the adhibition of a pure life force energy a very interesting point more well i've heard it before more carbon you know dioxide in the atmosphere would result in in greater vegetation on the earth which would produce more oxygen which would result ultimately in more uh, food and people have theorized that this is also what actually could support the dinosaurs. For example, they've they've noticed that the that the nostrils of some of these giants are as big as they are on a cow today. And it's like, would it be impossible for this huge animal to even get that amount of oxygen into their body uh, quick enough? So what has been speculated, I've heard, is that there the the, the what that equals is that there had uh, had to be more oxygen basically in the air at that time to be able to support these huge animals. So this is kind of what you're getting at, I guess, uh, Ross. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. The balance returns. When we balance the magnetic field and when we pump the life force back into matter, um, everything comes alive. The rocks, um, like for example, in Ireland and in Sweden, I've noticed, um, I think you, you operate out of Sweden. That's right. Throughout Scandinavia, we have these wonderful mythologies of these entry points into the delicate lands, the lands where where people live to be very old still, um, these uh, paradises that are accessible still by the saints and the sages and the holy people because they understand the subtle or fine creations. And these entry points are, are guarded on the other side um, by um, the families and the governments that, that rule in the higher dimensions of the earth. 
uh, to prevent people of lower consciousness from from inadvertently stumbling into these zones. So we hear stories of, of Bigfoot, and we hear stories of um, of uh, strange uh, zoomorphic uh, beings that uh, inadvertently come into our world from time to time. I, we just heard a story about giant spiders uh, that exist with uh, feet that spread over five feet, you know, like Shelob out of the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> that are still found in parts of India. Um, and they, they've been actually documented. Uh, so th- there are animals the Cherokees speak about that once existed and plants that no longer uh, exist because they, they can't sustain themselves in the environment that's been created since the earth has been relegated to the sort of dry condition without the moisture of the ether present. Now, Madame Blavatsky, uh, who is an esoteric writer uh, that many of you may, may be familiar with, stated unequivocally that when the Atlantean civilization was here, they had pyramidal structures placed uh, strategically all through their islands and all over the planet in order to constantly process the energy of the atmosphere with the energy of the earth to produce a, uh, a sweet, clean, etheric energy, which, when it was released into the atmosphere, helped to restore the balance of, um, of oxygen and, and carbon dioxide and, and other elements. And at the same time, creatures that were harmful tend to be relegated to their uh, specific environs, you know, kind of like Mirkwood. <laughs> and and mm. um, beings of light had greater access. So we did interplanetary trade, and uh, angelic beings were more easily um, uh, welcomed and could temporarily sustain communications with uh, the average uh, citizen in those days when we reopened the, uh, the membrane, which we, 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 when we dissolved the membrane that required a, a greater pressure of ether to be present in our, in our environment. Jim, tell us how, how you think that the various uh, I guess megalithic monuments and mounds and what have you that you've been looking into uh, play into this, if you're on the same page as Ross on this, uh, that is. I, yeah, I, I would think, um, I'm just guessing that Ross, Hugh, and myself are all on the same page. And, you know, this is separate from all the evidence. For the It's funny because I'm trying to uh, engage in the scientific method, method and, and produce a bunch of tangible evidence but at the same time, listening to my intuition and all I've studied to really paint a picture of what happened in the past. And I would say, if you look around the globe, the most intricate, difficult, and largest stonework is always the oldest. And as a stonemason, I've seen sites, you know, the Great Pyramids, Pumapunku, Saksiwaman, Nanmedal, Costa Rican spheres. And, and, and archaeologists get a free pass. They're not compelled to say... You could you could work on this you know diorite and granite for a thousand years with copper chisels and you'd never get anywhere. So we have a story that's been um, turned upside down, and everybody it's like the Clovis barrier when uh, uh, Jim was Avadasio in uh, from Mercyhurst College. He unearthed sixteen thousand year old. Um, carbon dated remains in, at Meadowcroft Shelter. He was attacked. He was called incompetent. He was, you know, accused of, of planting evidence and stuff like that. 
And you see how academia treats these things. You know, I really think this whole phenomenon opens the door on a lost civilization, like an Atlantis-like civilization that flourished. What I found is Madame Blavatsky and Isis Unveiled talks about giants. The Freemasons and the Rosicrucians and their texts talk about giants. They have giant uh, skeleton accounts listed in their, in their literature. Edgar Cayce has several readings where he talks about it, and they all are telling the same thing. The Rosicrucians and the Freemasons talk about Atlantis being, you know, where all their esoteric information came from, and that there was a worldwide grid set up in the past that did what, you know, Ross uh, was right, talking that's right. about. I really feel like it's pointing in this direction, and if you study Native American oral history, and what I found is oral history can te- uh, keeps being verified by science, the ability to understand tsunami frequency by the native tribes in the West Coast, the understanding of the geologic record in Western Massachusetts over 10,000 years old with Lake Hitchcock and Mount Sugarloaf. So what I found is there, it's, it's not Native American myth or legend. It is oral history that has a lot of veracity. And they talk about all these um, you know, realities, giants and multidimensionality and star people and, you know, I just believe, like I said, that that it, it's not just we're not just going to get proof of of one reality. We are going to get a whole different dynamic about our existence and see that uh, you know I believe we all share a holographic brain, for instance, the you know a universal mind. So we've all been keeping the truth from ourselves in a way, and we're all waking up to a different reality. And in fact, I'm very hopeful in the future that uh, we will have a much much more expansive and enlightened view of reality. And what we are ourselves um, in reality. So I, you know, I believe this points back to um, a past civilization that blended its science and spirituality in a way that our cold and arrogant scientific um, paradigm cannot understand at this point. But people with a with intuition and compassion are starting to figure out N- native testimonies and mythology, as Ross pointed out, have been you know thrown out and they've certainly done their best to discredit uh, all of this as, as fairy tale stories, uh, you know, at best that they're symbolic or religious or something like that. But uh, Jim, let's talk a little bit more about the physical evidence. And, and also, if you think that there, you know, are, are people and groups, etc., that actually are responsible for the uh, systematic destruction of this, of the physical evidence of giants. Absolutely. Um, one of Ross's buddies, uh, Alex Hedrichka, I hope that's the right name. <laughs> He was the um, first director of anthropology for the Smithsonian starting in 1910. He's the one who said giants no more. And he was a zealous, uh, racist, um, uh, really a mean-spirited guy who he called Louis Leakey a heretic to his face. And uh, Ross's book is just uh, a great source of all to find out the misdeeds of this character. But he led the charge to, to marginalize these giant skeleton finds. Let me quickly, uh, I just want to read a couple of things that I found. Um, sure. In the Washington Post, this is one of thousands of accounts, uh, June 24th, 1937, presiding judge W.J. Graham of the United States Court of Custom and Patents Appeals unearthed an enormous skull in Stafford County, Virginia. He said it looked almost as big as a watermelon when they mounted it in the Smithsonian. And I found in the Smithsonian's annual report, Graham, Judge W.J. Washington, D.C., Human skeletal material from three ossuaries in Stafford County, Virginia. The number is 144975. 
So the Smithsonian has that massive skull as big as a watermelon, verified by the judge, an archaeologist who had sent all his um, material there. Another, uh, the well-known Newton W. Chittenden, the captain and explorer, he unearthed a massive skull, brought it to the Smithsonian, Hedrichka commented on it, um, he held it, held it as a long-treasured and priceless possession. Many European anthro anthropologists measured and, and observed the giant skull, and he would not sell it. He gave it to the Smithsonian, and let me give you the um, – and it is in their reports right here. Skull of flathead Indian, two flattening pillows, and the hunting shirt of a half-blood Cree Indian. Catalog number 51082 received as mentioned in the Smithsonian's annual report. I have dozens and dozens of accounts of the Smithsonian boxing up remains and sending them back uh, to Washington, D.C. And when you contact them about any find, you get um, just a dismissal. You know, we have no evidence for a race of giants. It, and, and I'll quickly say, I found, and Ross has too, at least nine accounts done by their own scientists in their ethnology reports of over seven-foot skeletons, uh, one with double rows of teeth, Augustus Mitchell, 1874, with a giant axe also found in an enormous skull. So the Smithsonian's own ethnology reports are saying these things. And uh, scores of physical anthropologists, scientists, archaeologists are saying the same things. And it is just beyond belief that a multi-generational hoax covering 150 years, engaging thousands of people for no perceived benefit, could exist if you say that this isn't a reality, then you are part of another conspiracy, which a skeptic will never, uh, never define, that you believe that all these scientific journals, Smithsonian reports, news, um, I'm sorry, New York Times accounts are somehow fictional, and the thousands of people indicted in them and all the onlookers are part of a vast conspiracy that they didn't complain about. Uh, that's what you're saying, essentially. It is just, um, you know, beyond belief. Interesting. Now, uh, Hugh, it seems to me that there are more findings on the American uh, continents of, of giants and giant skeletons. And one of the reasons, if this is the case, is that it's it's a fairly, well, it took a little while, if I put it that way, before, uh, you know, Europeans headed over there, the, the native Indians and have a tradition there to kind of keep this in their culture for a longer period of time. And hence, it seems like a lot of the, the finds that were done in the um, you know early and late 19th, uh, 1900s or 1800s, they, they've been preserved there or something like that. So, so that, you know, we can, we, we, when people were building something new, they literally stumbled over a lot of these graves, etc. Is that how you see it uh, too, Hugh? Or is there another explanation for why there seems to be more giants on, on the Americas continent? Um. <clears throat> Well, I don't know. I think it's because um, it was inhabited by, you know, the native inhabitants, the Native Americans, um, and they just they didn't really, I guess they don't really build and destroy like uh, the white man does. Um, and so, I mean, I, I've read reports, for instance, where people were just digging cellars. They were just making, um, you know, basements in their house. Uh, in Pennsylvania, there's several reports of uh, people who were just digging basements or cellars, and they would find giant skeletons just randomly. There wasn't any particular mounds or grave sites or anything like that, apparently, in the vicinity. Um, but it's the same thing. I mean, I look at, if you look at this from a global perspective, I mean, throughout the Americas, there are reports of giants uh, in Mexico, um, and even down in Peru and Bolivia. 
Even Viracocha was said to have created, you know, the legend states that Viracocha around Lake Titicaca created a race of giants that were then, and then there was flood myths involved with that, even in Peru and Bolivia. Um, and, you know, when you're looking at it uh, from the megalithic perspective, it gives some credence to that the fact that maybe the giants could have actually lifted some of these stones if they worked yeah. together. Yeah. Um, but it's just become, it's, it's such, and it's such, since Ross has come out with his three books on the giants and Jim's been popularizing it through the internet as well, I feel there's, like Jim said, I think something has, has to shift here. We have to kind of, I, I get a feeling because of the, the Repatriation Act, um, a lot has now gone missing, so we're not going to have access to some of these skeletons that we, we would have had a few years ago. But as we've seen in Turkey, like with Gebekli Tepe, sites and discoveries are still being made um, that, that are shifting the whole paradigm of the way we view the past. Um, I mean, I, it's a really interesting example from Turkey. And this is just back from the 1950s. This is you know, near the Euphrates area of Turkey in the southeast, near, not that far from Gebekli Tepe. Um, but apparently a 15-foot human skeleton was found down there. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and other uh, femurs and other skeletons and, and skulls have been found in that area too, which is the kind of legendary place of uh, the Anunnaki or some people call it you know, the fallen angels and we get into that whole story. Um, but I think we kind of really have to question um, – where 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 all the skeletons gone? I I managed to see one giant skeleton, by the way, when I was in America. Mm -hmm. um, and if anyone wants to see it, it's at the Muta Museum in Philadelphia, and there's a seven foot six or seven foot eight skeleton that was. Um, and I looked, uh, I did a bit of research on that because, you know, according you know traditionally that would have been removed by the Repatriation Act. So I thought this is interesting. Why is this here? So I did a little bit of research on that. I found that it actually came. It, it was supposed to be just a deformed skeleton, but it, it looked pretty kind of not too deformed to me. But I did a bit of research and found that when I looked at the report, um, it came from west. It came from northern Kentucky, which is the Ohio Valley kind of mound culture area. Oh. And um, what it also said was that the person who supplied it to the museum said the, o the only way they would be able to accept it, uh, they, they would only give it to the museum if the museum kept their mouth shut about where it came from <laughs> <laughs> and how it was found. Yeah. So that could be a genuine um, giant skeleton, which is clearly on display in this Muta Museum, which is wow. um, uh, a biological, you know, it studies the whole human anatomy the museum does. And it's well worth a visit. How, um, how big was it again, uh, Hugh? It was seven foot six. Wow. Mm. Yeah, or seven foot eight maybe. But and there was um, a normal size skeleton next to it, um, etc. And uh, and in the same museum, um, and also in the uh, Penn Museum, the Pennsylvania Museum in Philadelphia, are many elongated skulls that are actually from a collection from Peru, as well. So there's um, there's quite a lot going on in that area. And and the whole you know obviously the whole Pennsylvania area is oft is also where obviously lots. Lots of giant skeletons have been discovered. Some they say up to eleven for eight, eight inches tall is the largest one I've, I've uh, researched from Pennsylvania. Wow, very interesting, Ross. I wanted to ask you if if you know that there are any other uh, skeletons or, or skulls left. I mean, I pointed out on, on a recent program on the very same topic that there are many, uh, you know, fake giant skeleton images out there, photoshopped, etc. This helps to muddy the water and discredit it to a certain degree, but. 
Are, are there any skulls or other giant skeletons that you know of today, like like you uh, Hugh mentioned, that uh, can be viewed, or maybe they're held uh, somewhere by someone? I have a friend who uh, did some private repatriation, so the bones that uh, uh, this uh, collector had made around the turn of the century would not get given back to Indians. Um, and he uh, he told me that he could retrieve a skull if we really needed to, but I myself have never actually seen a giant skull. I've never actually physically seen one. Now, I, I, should, um, I should mention, I think it's kind of important to mention that uh, we do have giants in our society that are, you know, seven foot six, seven foot eight, like uh, Yao Ming, who, who plays uh, basketball for right. the Houston Rockets. He's, I yeah. think, seven foot eight. And Andre the Giant, um, you, you know, he was in the Princess Bride, world-class wrestler. Uh, he, he passed away, I think, when he was 35 or 36, because um, both Yao Ming and Andre had this condition called acromegaly or gigantism. And it affects the pituitary gland in youth, and it causes an overactive outpouring. And then um, after the, the uh, growth hormone has been, has been spent and, and you're out of your youthful period, then the, uh, the pituitary stops working entirely uh, or it's very low functioning. And as a result of that, um, they can't live uh, sustaining the body that they created in their youth uh, much past the age of 35. I don't think I don't think I know of anyone that's lived past forty with full blown acromegaly, but these skeletons, these skeletons that we find, not only do they have a genetic base in seven feet, we hardly found any skeletons that were between six foot and seven foot. We found a few six foot eighters, but most of them are seven feet and above, and none of them, none of them, suffered from the evidence from acromegaly mm -hmm. or gigantism. This is important to understand because this was a different race of people. Now, as soon as I say that, people automatically think Anunnaki or space visitors, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and they think about weird because we don't have the education yet to understand that we were the giants. Our DNA has relegated itself to um, being nurtured by in, in an environment that only knows how to enhance the solid, liquid, gaseous, and fiery elements. We lack the fifth element, which gives us clarity of insight, allows our inner eye to open. It's called the etheric element. And it's, uh, according to the masters, it's intentionally taken away from us so we can have a period of longing for our lost enlightenment, longing for God, in other words, or, you know, the beloved. What, why is and that, it, do you think, Ross? Why, why do we need that period? Well, it, it causes a greater spurt of spiritual growth among the populace. If the light is taken away for five, six thousand years, the, all the libraries are burned, um, all of the tombs are dug up, have you, have you noticed, I mean, it's a point I make in my book, and I think Jim and Hugh agree with me, that um, if you look back in history, 
we had this insatiable curiosity to dig up the tombs and the graves. Mm -hmm. We cannot leave them alone. The time capsules, the tombs, the graves, the sepulchers, and, um, you know, the holy places. You know, we're always looking for sacred places where people would bury their treasures and things. So, you know, there's been free-for-alls, especially when a conqueror comes into a new country and, and settles in there, like, um, you know, like what Alexander did. Um, the first thing that happens is when, when a new power settles in, they begin to dig up the old tombs looking for treasure. Uh, I think John Michel points out that when, uh, during the, the period of unrest in China, back a couple thousand years ago, when one warlord after another had control, the first thing that, that happened when a new warlord took over a region was they go to the family tombs of the previously ruling class yeah. and mm -hmm. destroy the skeletons and loot it. And so the, the, uh, the old emperors took great care to hide all of their, um, their grave goods and their grave sites, which we know from modern archaeology. So in the United States, when the white man took over, first thing we did was we just eliminated all of the tombs. And there's hardly any left now that we know of. I'm sure there's still some there, but that's what we do. And as a result of destroying history, we become dark. We forget completely because it was the library at Alexandria that was our last hope. You know, Hitler burned the books too because – you know, when a new power comes in, you want to get rid of the old. They say that Jesus Christ was, was a name that was made up to have the sum of a particular number, which Michelle points out, and I point out in one of my books. Uh, Jesus is valued at 888 because the real messianic figure, uh, philosophers tell us, was Apollonius of Tyana. He was the one that performed all the miracles and so forth. But that when he passed away... Uh, the new church structure sought to um, preserve the teachings of Apollonius, and so they uh, called him Apollos, and he's mentioned, I think, seven times in the New Testament. But he just became one of the brethren, you know. And Paul, and, and point I'm trying to make is that um, when we burned the libraries, when the Romans took over, you know, and, and, uh, and changed when the ecclesiastical editorship came over and, and changed uh, things, then we all forget, you know, we, because we depend on books. So what we look, what we're looking for is a time when we can be spiritually re re recalled of who we are. And then we'll have contact with libraries that have been preserved in the etheric zone of our planet. Now we should be connected with the etheric zone, but we're not. And again, it's been intentionally taken from us. And now, with the help of guys like Hugh Newman, who I, I predict is going to become a very important figure, and Jim Vieira, who is going to become a grassroots hero one day. I can see that already starting. <laughs> um, we're going to uh, enact a revival of this wisdom that will not be stopped. Uh, and there's uh, nothing can prevent the revival of this knowledge, and we will restore Glastonbury. We will restore many of the old temples and begin to start that process that 
was embodied in the old Titan structures. You know, the, the, the Titans were replaced by 12 Olympians. And so there were temple systems laid out through the civilized world. And the, and you know, the Egyptians had the same thing. But originally these temples were powered by, um, the Ark of the Covenant or some other reasonable source to get the reaction started between earth and sky. So, you know, that's what we're looking forward to. That's what Hugh is pushing. And that's what Jim is pushing with the understanding of megalithomania and, and the importance of, of training the magnetic currents of the earth and bringing them to the dragon layers. And I know Scandinavia has a rich tradition of dragon layers. And these were the spots where the, where the currents of the earth were converged in order to draw down the Thor power, the lightning power of the sky. You know, throughout the Norse myths, we see the same thing that somebody, there was a, a system there that was headed up by some very intelligent people who transcended mortality at one point, but have now been relegated to the myths of Asgard. Mm, so, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful new age we're coming into. Well, fascinating, yeah, gentlemen. We're, we're going to take a break in, in a little while here. We should, uh, of course, talk about some of the material uh, that you all have available, upcoming events and websites and such. I just want to ask you one more uh, question quickly here, Ross. Uh, if this, what, what you're discussing here, if this is an external, um, I guess, time-driven property that, that that is coming and going, if you will, like a cosmic clock. You mentioned the great year and the fact that we're seems to be in a cyclical period of, of comings and goings, if you will, of, of this uh, ether. So is it externally driven? Yeah, actually, um, it, it's, it's internally driven uh, to in the reality of it. We're, we're, um, there is a movement on this planet uh, to get people to meditate more through various channels. And there's a, been an outpouring of, uh, of masters of spiritual science leaving India and starting to take incarnation in the West. Uh, we're transforming people from the inside out. And then many of those masters are going to teach how to extrovert the internal knowledge and recreate the spiritual science. In other words, take the processes of internal transformation, focus, and and uh, love, and so forth, and externalize those same properties through um, understanding the correct properties of seeds and the magnet, the uh, the lodestone, so to speak. Mm -hmm, yeah. So, yeah, we'll see a revival of the knowledge externally as we grow internally, you see. So both both of these aspects are well underway. All right, very good. We have much more to discuss in the second hour, and uh, let, let's talk where our listeners can uh, go to find out more. Jim, let's begin with you. Uh, you have a lot of interesting videos out there that people can watch. You mentioned a, a Facebook page uh, earlier. Do you have any, uh, I guess, books in the works or, or other videos videos or something like that to, to come? Well, first, I, I have a Facebook page, uh, Stone Builders, Mound Builders, and the, uh, the Giants of Ancient America. And I post lengthy posts daily, and I have hundreds of giant skeleton accounts, newspaper clips where I go in depth about the story. I talk about the mounds of ancient America and uh, stone structures in New England. I recently did a TEDx video, and it ended up being the number one watched video TEDx video in the world with 118,000 views. <clears throat> and then it was removed from the Internet by the fine folks at TED and gave me a list of pathetic reasons. I, I was, you know... Badmouth and the Koch brothers and the Smithsonian uh, at the end of the talk, so I, I can see why it was taken down. Hmm. 
so I, although, you know, I, I, my crime was not to, um, advocate a risky and unproven health cure. I, I frankly was just reading the Smithsonian's own accounts and town histories in New York times headlines. So I guess people can decide there's probably pirate copies of that floating around Jim Vieira TEDx. I just did an Ignite Amherst uh, five-minute video at an Ignite conference, and if you hit Jim Vieira Ignite Amherst, you'll get that. It has about seven or 8,000 views in the last day or so, uh, so it's picking up some speed. And, you know, I would say the format for me, the best format to convey this information is, is, is through Facebook, frankly. Every day I do a lengthy post, and unless you're criminally insane – if you read through, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 of these posts, you will quickly see that the arguments given by skeptics are, are baseless, that these are not um, hoaxes. There was just a couple hoaxes, not thousands of them. Um, they are often done by trained professionals. It's, it's not disarticulation. It is not mastodon bones. And the, the arrogance and the dismissiveness that I face and the personal insults, frankly, you know, I'm from the wrong side of the tracks, and I'll tell you what, you know, when you get personally insulted, it's like, you know, I'll meet you in the back alley. <laughs> I can't believe the arrogance of some people, but that's a different story. So I've got to talk to my therapist, I guess. But, um, you know, so the reality is, is it is just, you know, if you get this information out there, people can decide for themselves, and that's all I'm trying to do. I think the Facebook page is the best way to do it. I am working on a, a documentary film. And I will say that I believe all that what Ross just said, and this isn't about like, oh, giants existed, that's cool. Now let's go back to sleep and be compliant consumers. I think it is a wedge into the system that we've, we all have responsibility for creating that is going to usher in a new understanding of, of our reality of electromagnetism and, and um, different multidimensional realms, frankly. I, I really wanted to second that motion, what Ross said. All right, very good. Uh you're doing a talk at Megalithomania here. Tell us about that quickly. Yes, I'm doing a talk in early Utah. Uh, I'm doing a talk at the Northeast Antiquities Conference in late April. I'm doing some others. But uh, um, Hugh asked me to speak, I think it's October 5th, at Megalith America in Boston. And I know Robert Schock's going to be there, David Hatcher Childress, and others. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, I think uh, it will be a very good event, very well attended. And I'm uh, very thankful to be part of it. All right, Ross, let's uh, turn to you and talk uh, a little bit about your material and work. A couple of book titles, of course, um, that we've been briefly mentioning here throughout the first segment. Uh, I, th I believe you have three that I'm aware of then out there. Star Mounds, uh, The Mystery of the Serpent Mound, and then A Tradition of uh, Giants. Is there anything I'm missing there, Ross? Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I have a, some smaller uh, publications out, but that's... That's pretty much it. Star Mounds, Legacy of Native American Mystery, The Mystery of the Serpent Mound, and then A Tradition of Giants. Very good. And do you have a, a website, Ross, where people can go to read more about your work? Actually, uh, I used to, but I don't anymore. I'm in the process of gathering my wits together to figure out exactly what I'm going to put up. Because research is at a, at a stage right now where I hate to um, publish anything more than a blog. And... Uh, I'm not really into the kind of websites that I'm seeing out there. I'm really kind of conservative. I have a uh, kind of a library mentality. So uh, I do have a Facebook site, though. Anybody connect with me, I'll accept anybody. Uh, and it's uh, Ross 
Hamilton, and there's the icon of the Serpent Mound covered with snow next to my name. So uh, no website, but I have a Facebook site, and I'm working on getting a website put up maybe over the next year. All right. Well, we'll link up that Facebook page so people can connect with you there. That's, that's excellent. And some of your books as well. And then you also have an upcoming uh, event here with uh, with Hugh and Megalithomania. Tell us about that, Ross. Well, um, you can better describe it. But from my point of view, um, Hugh has asked me to sort of um, make public uh, a new discovery <clears throat> that uh, it actually took me quite a few years to to figure out, and that has to do with a Glastonbury-like zodiac, uh, but consisting of uh, every conceivable part of the night sky uh, that was embedded upon the landscape probably about five to 6,000 years ago originally, and then was reconstructed by some Native American people that held on to the traditions of the uh, of the uh, what I call the Glastonbury of the West. The Ohio Valley uh, is rich with earthworks, uh, and but there were probably 60 or 70 of these temple-like structures that contain no burials. And then there was about 10,000 works that contain nothing but burials. And most of those burials held people who were responsible for kind of um, refurbishing the the uh, the temple foundations in earth. So these were like a primitive people that were uh, of the ancestry of godlike people. Uh, and we have the same situation all over the planet. Um, you know, we have indigenous folk who appear to be very humble and poor and unenlightened. But their myths and stories tell us about a time when their ancestors lived to be very old and were godlike and could perform superhuman functions. And um, so the book, um, Star Mounds, is probably what we're going to focus on, along with the Giants a little bit. And I'm probably going to ask you to uh, maybe dialogue with me by Skype uh, so that he can ask pertinent questions that uh, he thinks that the people in uh, Great Britain and around the planet that are tuned in will find uh, interesting because if I'm allowed to go off on my own tangent, well, you know the result of that. <laughs> All right. Very good. Now let's turn to you, Hugh, and, and give us the, the website, of course, where people can go to find out more about the events and if there's any other uh, you know, details and stuff like that about your next few upcoming events uh, that we kind of missed here uh, when it comes to both Ross and, and Jim and, and other things you have going on, uh, Hugh. So the main website uh, is megalithomania.co.uk. That that's his uh, details about the conference in England and Glastonbury on, in May. Ross is going to be doing a Skype lecture there, and we've got people like Robert Shock, Ewan Mackay, Andrew Collins, myself, Maria Wheatley, and several others are going to be speaking there. And we're doing lots of tours, five days of tours, all that kind of stuff. Um, in October, we're doing Megalithomania in America, in Boston. Again, Jim's going to be involved in that. We're going to be exploring the New England megalithic sites, which are fascinating within themselves. And David Hatch Childress is contemplating joining us, Robert Shock, um, and a few other very interesting speakers to be confirmed. That's early October. And um, we want to kind of, the theme of the giants seems to be coming more into the megalithic ancient mysteries field and people are really taking it seriously now at last. 
Um, we're involved. I mean, Megalithomania, as the listeners probably know, we we we, we like to get out to these sites. Uh, we all whenever whenever we do a conference, we go and explore some sites, and we do sort of tours now to Peru um, and Bolivia. And we're going to explore Gebekli Tepe and Baalbek in September with Andrew Collins. Uh, and almost all these places we explore, there's, you do find the stories of the giants um, over and over again. Yeah. Um, in Ireland as well, we're doing something over there. You, you, can't, you can't get away from it, really. But I did this blog. I, I think if people want, are interested, it's megalithomania-america.blogspot.co.uk. And this is just my journey with my, with my girlfriend, Sheena Gass through uh, from New England through Pennsylvania around the Ohio Valley just on a, on a quest really to understand who these giant people were why they were building these sites and some insights um, along the way and obviously I, was, I met up with Ross and we stayed with Ross for uh, almost a week in total probably um, and we met up with various other people like Robert Shock and Jeffrey Wilson uh, many others and so yeah it's an un- like, like Jim pointed out it's an unfolding story um and i think we're you know at the point where um things are really going to start coming out about this subject very soon right very good megalithomania.co.uk we'll have the link to the blog up there as well hugh but we'll uh we'll take a short break here so thank you gentlemen stay with us and we'll uh, proceed in a minute In hour two, we focus on etheric energy, enchantment of the landscape, and reawakening the grid of the planet, and much more. We'll proceed in just a minute. I just want to let you know that we have Ulla Dammegård with us next for the third and last part 
in our series on the assassination of Olaf Palme. To continue to listen to our second hour with Ross, Jim and Hugh, go to redicemembers.com and click on subscribe to sign up for a subscription. You'll of course get full access to our archives. We have a few different options for you. Check out whatever suits you. We have uh, some treasures for you in our archives. We highly recommend it. We'll be right back with more. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.